All right, now it's my turn. Got a little uh, premature uh, heading up here just after a great worship time. You want to get up and preach. And then Keith looked at me and said, no, no, sit down. So turn to your, in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. For those who haven't been with us, uh, we have been studying the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So if you're not sure uh, where the books are at in the Bible, you can either do two things. Look to the table of contents and look for the, the book of Malachi. It starts with an M, ends with an I, and there's a whole bunch of letters in between there. You can see the spelling there for you. Or you can go and open the Bible about 45% of the way through, maybe even 50% of the way through. You're going to find uh, a lot of small books with funny names to them. And uh, just keep going through those funny names until you get to Malachi because the next books that we know of are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of course, the Gospels that are found in the New Testament. But we've been studying this book, Malachi, an ancient truth for modern times. And for this last summer, we have spent time looking at this last of the prophetic books that God has for his people. And this, you would think, would be a nice farewell address from God uh, to the people of Israel, but it's not. In many ways, it's a, it's a pretty tough letter. It's a, it's a harsh letter, because not because God wanted to be harsh with his people, not because God wanted to just kind of go off on his people and, and uh, do some yelling and screaming about some things that are bothering him, but the problem was is the people of God were not living the way God wanted them to. They weren't doing what he had told them to do. They weren't worshiping like they were supposed to. They weren't giving uh, their all like God had commanded them to. They found themselves uh, getting involved in relationships that they shouldn't. They found themselves turning away from the uh, righteousness of God and pursuing the things that their friends and, and others around them were pursuing. This book was written 2,500 years ago, and yet all of those things are applicable to us today. We find ourselves not giving our all to God. We find ourselves in relationships we shouldn't be in. We find ourselves desiring to pursue the things our neighbors and our friends have instead of pursuing God. This is an ancient truth for modern times. We've only got two sermons left out of this series when we look to Malachi chapter 4, Malachi 4 is a very, very short chapter. This is it, the last six verses of the Old Testament. We're going to look at the first three verses this morning, so I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word. As we look to uh, Malachi, I'm going to start in verse uh, 13 of chapter 3 to give us a context, and we'll be in verses four, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 this morning. This is what God says, You have said harsh things against me, saith the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? Uh, but now we call the arrogant blessed. We say certainly the evildoers prosper and even those who challenge God escape. They're angry at God. Look at what verse 16 says. Not everybody was angry with God because then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared him and honored his name. Listen to what the Lord says of those people that committed themselves in verse 17. They will be mine, 
says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I will make up my treasured possession, I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Chapter 4 says, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day is coming. And, the, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who fear or revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of the feet on that day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Let's pray. Father God, we've opened your word this morning. And Lord, we've come and we've sung praises about you. We've spoken of the works of your hands. We have been told testimonies, whether in song or in word, speaking about how some of us have been challenged to go and do what you've called us to. So now, Lord, we open your word, challenged to uh, live that way, challenged to uh, be a people who revere your name. And so, Lord, I pray that the truths from your word this morning would, would impact us, that they would meet us where, they're, where we're at, that it would uh, confront the one who's never trusted you as their Savior to remind them a day is coming, that they must turn from their sins, turn from their evil ways, and, and come to Jesus. And, Lord, also for those who have trusted Christ, that, yes, a day is coming. And we are told that we should do all that we can because our days are short. And we should live lives of, of love and, and, and proving God's grace and mercy in our lives to others, showing them what you have done. We would be busy doing our Father's work so that when your Son comes, we will be ready because soon we will see the King. So Lord, uh, give uh, me a recall to the notes that I've written. Give the people here uh, receptive hearts, we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Here in America, we find ourselves being people who want a preview of things in our life. Now, let me explain that for a moment. I, I go to Sam's a lot and uh, do a lot of purchases. And I, I love where Sam's is going with some of their customer relations. If you've ever been to the Sam's Club, you, you'll notice almost at every now, it, it's, getting, it, it's getting quite amazing, almost every end of the aisle, you will find an individual just cooking up something. And, and Amanda will say, well, after we go to Sam's, we'll go grab a bite to eat. I say, no, we'll eat at Sam's. And, and, and we'll send the boys up a couple different times. They won't turn them down. And, and you, it's amazing because why are they doing that? They want you to taste a little bit of what the bigger thing they have to offer. They want to give you just a, a little sampling of, of what you're missing out on. 
I think about that with cars. We watch uh, commercials on TV and we, we watch these beautiful cars that are glistening and they're sliding this way on the road and moving that way, showing their acceleration and power and style. And we watch and say, yeah, I really like that. that. I could look good in that. And there are some cars that uh, make you look better than other cars. I used to tell my dad it wasn't very popular, uh, not very uh, appealing to the girls to drive a uh, catering cargo van to high school. I don't know if a catering cargo van will ever be in in our culture. But we see that and we say, I, I want to respond to that because I want that. I, I want to go get that. But I think there is no better illustration of our desire to get a sampling of things than when we go to a movie. You know, you go and you get your popcorn, you buy your ticket, and you get yourself seated in the chair. And for the first 10 minutes of, of any feature movie in a movie theater, you're going to see the words coming soon. And for the next 10 minutes, what they do is they show you these things that they call previews or trailers. I just learned uh, this week that a movie trailer is called that. I never understood that, but it was called that because early on when uh, full-length movies were going on in theaters, that the previews, in essence, were the post-views. As the movie uh, would finish up, then they would say, coming soon. Now, the problem was is that movie theater owners learned that uh, people didn't stay for the post-views. And so they got rid of the movie trailer and started doing previews before the movie. I gotta tell you, if uh, Village Bible Church was a movie theater, we would probably go back to the movie trailer because uh, the time of previews is pretty sparsely attended on any given Sunday. That's just a shot at some, but that's all right. But you know, we see coming soon, and what takes place in that? Is it the full movie? No. Do they give away the ending of the movie? No. But they give us just enough to understand, is this a movie I want to see? Is this something I want to make sure I, I plan and, and am ready for? I was amazed to uh, get on a, a website of, uh, uh, I can't remember exactly what uh, association it was, but it had to do with movie uh, theater owners and, and the movie business. And, and what it said, I want to make sure I get this right, that 74% of people who go to see a particular movie made their decision to see it because of the preview that they saw. Think about the last couple movies you've seen. Were they as a result of seeing something on TV or seeing it at, a, at another uh, movie theater? 74% because they got a sampling of something that it looked like they wanted to respond to it. Well, our text today is a preview in the heading of uh, Malachi chapter 4, uh, in my NIV, it says, The day of the Lord. I would rather put coming soon. Put it in big writing. Coming soon. Something is about to happen. Look at what our text says. It says, Surely the day is coming. Surely the day is coming. Now, Malachi is a book that we find ourselves comparing and contrasting uh, with different things. In Malachi chapter 1, we find ourselves comparing and contrasting God and his perpetual love for his people. Remember, he says, I've loved you, says the Lord. But the people come back and we see a contrast. They say, well, how have you loved us? Wait a minute, God, you say you've done that, but we don't feel that way. 
And even though God has poured out his love, the people uh, respond differently. We see it in uh, Malachi chapter 2 where it talks about the admonition to the priest. We know from Malachi chapter 2 that the people, the, the men that were supposed to be the godly ones, the ones that held to all the uh, regulations of what God had written for his people to do in worship, we see they're not living that way. And God says, you're not doing what you're called to do. So let me give you a contrast. Let me tell you about this man named Levi. Let me tell you about your ancestors Even though you live this way, I want to show you a good example and contrast you and compare you to this uh, better example. How about Malachi chapter 3? In Malachi chapter 3, we see a contrast again between God and man. God says, I'm going to pour out the floodgates of heaven. God says, I want to make sure that your land is a plentiful land. God says, I want to take care of you. And I've always have because I, the Lord, do not change, it says in verse 6 of chapter 3. But what happens with man? There's a contrast. God is giving. God takes care. God supplies. Man robs. The Bible says in Malachi chapter 3 that you rob me. You take. Even though God gives, we take. Well, in Malachi 4, we see again a contrast. But again, just like in Malachi 2, it it seems to go Malachi 1, contrast man and God. Malachi 2, man and man. Malachi 3, God-man. In Malachi 4, we go back to that man-man contrast because here is this day that is coming, but there are two different results that take place. Notice what happens first. This day of the Lord will mean judgment for the sinner. It will mean judgment for the sinner. Now, before we move on any farther, we have to understand what does it mean by the day of the Lord? What is that? Well, we need to understand, first of all, that there are 25 uses of this term in all of the Bible in 23 different verses. Let me tell you who spoke on these things. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, our friend Malachi here in the text. Luke said it in the book of Acts. Paul said it in First and Second Thessalonians. And then Peter said it in his two letters in First and Second Peter. What do we know about that from each of those texts? Well, you could uh, look up in, uh, in a concordance and look up the word, the day of the Lord or the day, and you will uh, see that there's uh, much that is unveiled about it. First of all, we need to understand uh, that it isn't just one particular day. It's not just one day, not as we understand a 24-hour time, as we call Sunday today a day. But it is uh, what scholars say, a period of time that includes God's greatest judgments as well as his greatest mercies that he will place upon humanity and this earth. While this is not a 24-hour day period of time, it is a season that we believe involves the great tribulation and goes all the way through to the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So it's a period of time where we know that the uh, millennial kingdom of Jesus uh, here on earth will be for 1,000 years. And we know that the great tribulation will be a time of seven years of tribulation. So we know that this day of the Lord, scholars tell us, will be at least as long as 1,007 years long. It's not a 24-hour day. It's not a day that we can just point out. But notice what happens. In our text it says 
that there's going to be judgment in that season of time. God says it's coming, it's going to be here, and there's going to be judgment. Notice what our text says. It says, surely the day is coming, and it will burn like a furnace. Now we need to understand when we get to a text like this, what is right before your word surely there? What, what do you see there? What, what is that? Anybody know what I'm talking about there? There's a, a numeral there. What is that? Number four, right? Can I get an amen? All right, let's wake up, folks. Surely the day is coming. Now, we put that four there. It's called a chapter break. I'm going to tell you something. When Malachi wrote this book, there was no four there. There was no three. There was no two. There was no one. It was just one long letter that was written. Now, now look at what it would have said beforehand. In verse 18 of chapter 3, and you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. Now, let's stop there for a moment. The reason why God announces this is because people who were following God started to think that God didn't care about them. Even though they did what God wanted them to, or they thought they were doing what God wanted them to, they were saying, you know what, God doesn't care. God takes care of the evil ones, He blesses those who are wicked, and He doesn't care about those whom He says He loves. We fall into that all the time. We look to our neighbors and our friends and we say, they're not walking with God and look how God has blessed them. They have all these great homes and all these great things and toys and I wish I could have that. I wish I could be a part of that. Why is God being so unfair? Why doesn't He give me some of that? And God says, hey, there's a time coming when they will get their due. The people seem to think that God was lax in His judgment but he says, and he starts that chapter, and he says with force, surely the day is coming. You know, my father used to say at times when uh, me and my brothers uh, would get into trouble, usually one of us got caught. My parents couldn't catch all three of us usually because we were pretty quick and scheming in our, in our uh, growing up days. And one of us would get caught. And the word that we would say is, but dad, Joel was with me. Aren't you going to punish him? I shouldn't just get the punishment. Just because you caught me doesn't mean that I should get the only beaten around. Someone else should get it. My dad would always say, don't worry about him. I'll take care of him. I never liked it when Joel was in my place and say, uh, well, where's Tim? And I'm standing around the back of the house and I hear my dad say, don't worry about Tim. Tim will get what he deserves. <laughs> never liked it. Always involved leather and... Uh, and my bottom in pain. They accuse him of overlooking sin. And God says there's a day coming. Now notice what, what is said then. He says the day is coming when he will judge. Well, what, what do we need to know about this day of judgment? Notice what the text says. The day is coming. There are two things we need to understand. First of all, this day involves a certain, involves a certain day in the future. This day hasn't happened yet. The day is coming. Now he says, surely the day. Now in the Hebrew, it means it's going to happen. It is a set time that is going to take place. And that period of time we call the day of the Lord, it will take place. Now you say, has it taken place? No, it hasn't taken place yet. The day of the Lord has not come to fruition. 
But we see this word surely. We need to understand something about it. It's, it's recorded in Malachi 2, 3, 3, 1, 4, 1, and 4, 5. Now you'd say, well, I don't see the word surely there. I see the word because. I see the uh, uh, word, uh, let me see here, 2, 3. I didn't write down what the other, ones, other words were. See. Uh, in verse 5 it says see. That word is an important word. What God is trying to do is he's trying to get the attention of the people. What he says is, hey, wake up. Understand, judgment is coming. Understand, I'm not going to let the evil ones get away with what they think they've gotten away with. There's a time coming. Pay attention. Just because you think I've been lax doesn't mean that is true. Your view of me is skewed. Now I'm going to correct it. Judgment is coming. So wake up and understand what is about to take place. But notice this day. This day in the future that is going to take place, we see that it involves uh, paying close attention. There's a proclamation being given. But the word coming there, uh, if you underline or, or circle and write in your Bibles, speaks of certainty and expectancy. The day coming means that, yes, it is going to happen. When God says, I'm coming, it means he is. He's going to be here. And it's a futuristic term, meaning I haven't gotten here yet, but we must not grow lax in thinking that he will never come because what it means is I could come at any time. I could be here at any moment. But notice what else takes place in this. We see it's characterized by God's fury. It's characterized by God's fury. This judgment that is going to be put on the sinner in this time that we call the day of the Lord is going to burn like a furnace. It's going to burn like a furnace. Now this first part of the day describes a burning furnace. Well, what does that look like? We don't, we don't have a good understanding of what a burning furnace is. All of us in our homes have a furnace and it burns, but, but is, that what, is that what Malachi is talking about? This burning furnace would have been a, a, a process of building. Uh, people in Malachi's day would have grabbed shovels and they would have dug out a hole in the ground. And the furnace literally was an oven. It wasn't to heat homes, it was to heat food. And what they would do is they would dig out a, a hole in the ground and they would uh, build this uh, brick or some sort of plaster type oven. And what it would do is they would get the fire started and it would be a very, very small fire. And they would put the material, the burning material in it and it would start to grow and grow and heat up and heat up. Kind of preheating the oven, if you will, back in ancient days. And this is an example, this is a, a, a metaphor that I think works well for God and his judgment. Because we're going to talk in a moment about fire, but Malachi stops us and, and the Lord wants us to understand that this is an oven. Well, what do we need to understand about this furnace or oven? Well, first of all, we need to understand that uh, the oven was slow to heat. One of the historians in the commentaries I was looking at said it would take hours that this was not a microwave. This wasn't a, a fire that just took off, but this was a slow-burning fire that would build up with more and more heat. The second thing I saw as I studied it was that it was contained. It had sides to it. It didn't burn out of control. It, it had a location where it was going to be, and it was contained. You, you didn't run uh, and out into other things. The next thing about this oven that I learned was it <clears throat> accomplished a specific task. It, it just didn't go where it wanted to, but uh, the people that built it, built it so that it would 
feed them and take care of them. It would do the process and the job that it needed to take care of. I want to stop there for a moment. This oven is like God's fury. God is angry, but we need to understand, uh, even with our sin, that God's anger just doesn't fly off the handle as uh, maybe a parent does or a spouse does or, or one of your kids do. This isn't something where he loses his temper. But what it is, is, is it finds uh, it building in heat. I will tell you from the garden in Genesis chapter uh, 2 and 3, where we see the fall taking place, that God started to preheat his oven. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God said, all right, I'm angry. I'm not going to destroy them, but I'm going to let them keep going. But I'm going to start that brick oven. And we'll start warming it up. And little by little, day by day, that heat started to heat up more and more. And God says, I don't need it to be heated up right now. I'll need it at a certain time, so I will leave it. But notice, God's fury, God's wrath is contained. God doesn't just allow his anger just to fly off and and I'm going to destroy you and I'm going to destroy you. Even when a judgment happened in the Old Testament, it seemed that God would give us this uh, picture of human emotion that would say he was grieved. He didn't like to have to do these things. It was necessary. It was a part of his plan, but he was grieved about it. And yet it was contained. But the other thing about that oven that, that is a good metaphor about God and his wrath and fury is that it achieved a purpose. Have you ever had someone that that was mad at you, that just started to utter all kinds of words and angry uh, phrases to you, and and you get done, you say, I have no idea. I I know you're mad at me, but I don't know why. I don't know what I can do to change it, but just stop yelling at me. God could do that. God could yell at us. He could scream at us. he He could shake his fist at us, but he doesn't. What he does is he speaks about his fury, he speaks about his wrath, and then he tells you, how we can fix it, how we can remove that wrath, how we can uh, silence that wrath by turning to obedience, faith, hope, and love. But as a result of this wrath that is growing, one day that oven will be hot. I don't know where that temperature is at with God right now, but God says, if you will, that he started preheating that oven thousands of years ago. And as we sin, the Bible says that the wrath of God is being uh, displayed. It's being revealed. And what we need to understand about that is we're not getting the wrath. What we are getting right now is we're starting to feel the heat of that oven as we're in the kitchen. As it's warming up and perspiration, we're saying, why is it so hot in here? We need to understand that the heat is building because God's wrath is beginning to warm up more and more. But notice what happens on this incredible day. As this heat begins to go, one day the timer will go off and it will come. And notice how the Bible describes it. First of all, this day of the Lord, write this in your outlines, is a day of dread. It's a day of dread. The prophet Joel describes this time in terms of fear and terror. Listen to what he says. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? Joel 2, 11. One of the other prophets, Isaiah, says this. He speaks of it being a day of darkness. The absence of light is always a sign of judgment. Listen to what Isaiah writes. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. 
The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light on that great day of the Lord, Isaiah 13, 10. Joel uh, says it in his prophecy, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, Joel 2, 31. Zephaniah, another minor prophet, says a day of darkness and gloom will come, a day of clouds and blackness in the 15th verse of Zephaniah. Listen to Isaiah again. He speaks of a day of destruction, this day of the Lord. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty, Isaiah 13, 6. Peter announces this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare, 2 Peter 3, 10. Isaiah says it will be a day of distress. Because of this day, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at each other, their faces aflame in Isaiah 13, 7 and 8. Listen to what Zephaniah says about it. That day will be a day of wrath. A day of distress and a day of anguish, a day of trouble and a day of ruin. I will bring distress on the people and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Finally, we'll see it's a day of decisive judgment. This will be a day where God begins to distinguish between the godly and the unrighteous. And listen to what is said in Isaiah 13, 11. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make desolate and to destroy the sinners within it. I, the Lord, will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put end to arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. This day of the Lord is a time of judgment for the sinner. God is saying, my oven is warming up. World, listen to what's happening. My oven, can't you feel the heat? It's coming. And what it should do to uh, those who have never bowed the knee to God, who have never trusted Christ as their Savior, say, why is it getting so warm in here? It's a warning to you. God is coming back. He's coming back and judgment is coming for all those who do not live for Christ and love Him. But notice it moves on because it will involve an all-consuming fire. Look at verse 1 again. It says later in that verse, the day will set them on fire. Fire is spoken about in the Bible many times, and most of the times it speaks of severe judgment. What is being said is, is God says, all right, my oven is heating up, but there's going to be a day where I uh, take the lid off of that oven. A couple years ago, I was uh, working at my catering office, and uh, I had uh, had a garbage can of, of coals that had been lit. And I, I, one of my employees had lit. I didn't know about it. And I was out looking for coals. And I, I felt as I was looking for a garbage can I needed uh, for another trailer, I saw this kind of warmth coming from the garbage can. And I was kind of, well, that's not supposed to be there. I wonder what that's all about. And I, I felt the sides and it felt pretty hot. And like the dummy that I am, I, I took the lid off the garbage can. Do you know what happened? There was a and a flame shot right up. And that's why I don't have any hair. (laughs) What happened? The heat was contained. But as soon as I took that lid off, the containment of it went from heat to what? Fire. One day, my friends, 
God is going to come. He's going to take that heavenly lid off his celestial grill or oven. And it's going to be time where we're not going to just say, oh, we're going to have a barbecue. In some ways, yes, we will. It's not the kind we would love to have. But there's going to be a time where that lid comes off and fire is going to burn. Notice what what the text says. It says that within that day, there's going to be fire. Why would we think that there's going to be fire? Why would God have fire? Well, we sang about it. Today, God, we see in the book of Hebrews, is a consuming fire. He's contained right now and he's, he's contained himself. Well, one day he's going to unveil that fire. And that fire that has purified us as believers is going to not purify the unbeliever. It's going to judge the unbeliever. Notice the difference between the furnace and the fire. The furnace is contained, it's controlled, yet fire is out of control. Meaning it, it goes. The furnace is a warning, yet uh, when we get to the fire, it's too late. The furnace is there, it's allowing us to feel heat, but the fire is burning everything up. Now notice what it burns. Look in the text. It says the word stubble. It's going to burn up stubble. What does that mean? Uh, The word there in the Hebrew is literally the dried um, chaff in the field. In our word, you're going to say, well, what is chaff? If you're not aware of that in the Hebrew culture and, and wheat, uh, what that is, is, you know, you see the combines come and combine either the soybeans or the corn here in Illinois. And you see all that stuff that's coming out of the back of the uh, combine. That's the chaff. That's all the stuff that they don't need. It's not productive for us. And what God is saying is, is the evildoers, the arrogant ones are like that stuff in the back. Have you ever seen a fire start with that? You know, I live in the country. I live where there's still a lot of farmland. And, and, and usually in a dry summer, uh, when we get to October and there's uh, um, time to uh, harvest the crops, you will hear about a fire almost every year because of the dry nature of our corn and soybeans. What will happen is you'll hear about a combine fire. Have anybody ever heard about this before, a combine fire? What happens is, is the stuff that is being worked out of the harvester starts warming up because, of course, this is a moving machine. This is a machine that's heating up. And the heat gets too close to the chaff. And what happens? That stuff is dry and it burns. And so what you'll see in the middle of a field in this couple hundred thousand dollar machine is fire all around it and sometimes even within it. And the farmer's running away from it. Why? Because it has consumed everything. God says a day is coming where the chaff will burn. Now notice it's an all-consuming fire. Look at what it consumes. The text says it consumes root and branch. It says not a root or branch uh, will be left to them at the end of verse 1. Well, what, what do we mean by that? We've got to be careful about uh, what we do with that. Uh, some scholars say, well, what that means is on that day of the Lord, the unbeliever will be burned up. And literally what it means is he'll be annihilated. We get the theology or the doctrine of annihilationism. What it means is at the end of the day, what God is going to do with sinners is he's going to zap them. He's going to burn them once and for all, and they will never, ever be around again. They're done. That's the moment where everything ends for the unbeliever. And there are some uh, good, solid men that that believe that way. But I I think they're wrong in that because as we look at it, we know the scripture, even Jesus said that uh, unbelievers will be sent to a place called hell. And this place of hell is a place where where the, the description is that the worm will not die, meaning that they're going to stay there. They're going to be there, that it will be a time of continual pain and suffering for all of eternity. 
At the end of the day, for the unbeliever, when God judges them, he doesn't zap them into non-existence. He sends them to a place of total existence where there is total pain, total suffering, and total feeling of all that is going on around them for eternity. Not being zapped into oblivion. So what do we do with that then? We need to understand that what God is burning up is every part of them. You say, well, didn't you just say, no, I, I don't mean them as a, uh, a person, as an entity, but what that means is they're getting rid of, he's burning up all the sin. He's taking care of it. You, you know, have you ever been gardening and you, you pull up a weed, but you only get that part that's above the ground? And what happens? It comes back, right? So what do you got to do? You got to get down there right by the ground and pull that thing out. And all these weed, or the, the weed comes out, but then all these little things at the bottom of it, the roots, You want to get rid of that weed? You pull that thing up. You burn all that stuff up. That's what God says he's going to do to the unbeliever. He's going to pull it up and make sure all of it is burned up. When this day of the Lord comes, this time comes, it's going to be a time of systematic cleaning of the world. He's going to clean house. Now notice what happens. He cuts down the faithless. Who's involved? The idea here is that God takes seemingly the established people of the world The people that seem to have it all put together, the ones that seem to have it all right. And and what happens? He cuts them them down. He takes the sinner and he puts them to judgment. Not a part of them will be left. There will be nothing left of them. But notice who's judged. Look at verse 1. All the arrogant and evildoers. Now notice, the people said that the arrogant and evildoers were the ones that were getting good treatment from God in Malachi chapter 3. They were the ones that were getting the blessing. But what does God say? He says, I'm going to destroy them. Why do you think I'm taking... Why would you think I would be nice to them? My word says that I'm not happy with their sin. I'm going to judge them. Now notice, arrogant and evildoers. What does that mean? The word arrogant is a rare Hebrew word. It gives the idea of one who has a sense of self-importance, which leads them to do what they want. So what it is, is what God's saying is, I'm going to judge uh, the one who thinks that Look at me, I'm Tim, and I do a lot of good things, and and as a result of that, I should be able to have some freedoms in my life. So I'm going to do whatever I want, whatever pleases me, whatever whatever I see and with my eyes that I say I want, I'm gonna I'm gonna have it. Solomon in his in his youthful days lived that way. Remember, he said, whatever my eyes wanted, whatever I saw that 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 appealed to me, I took it. God says, I'm going to destroy that. You're the arrogant ones. But then he says evildoers. It's the same word that is seen in uh, Malachi 4, chapter 3, where it speaks of the wicked. Same word there. It means that uh, the individual, everything about them is completely evil. Well, you say, well, what does that look like? We'll turn for a moment to Genesis for just a quick second. Genesis chapter 6. That word is seen again uh, with a better picture of the totality of it. Uh, Genesis chapter 6 Verse 5, someone help us out here. Uh, What's going on in Genesis chapter 6? The flood. Noah and the ark and the flood is going on. But notice right before the flood takes place, the Lord looks at humanity and what does he see? It says, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. Well, how bad had it become? Listen to what it says. Every inclination of his thought, the thoughts of his heart. Look at what it says was only evil. When did it happen? Tell me. All the time, continually. Who is God going to judge? 
He's going to judge the ones who have allowed wickedness instead of love for him and allegiance to him. Those that have said, you know what? I want to be my own king. I want to be my own God. I want to do what I want to do. And what that leads us to, every time we give ourselves over to ourselves, we find that we turn to evil and sin. Now notice then in the text, if those are evildoers and wicked ones, then we see a book that's ending with hellfire and brimstone. You ever heard a hellfire and brimstone message? Some of you are saying this is a hellfire and brimstone message. You know what? It could be. But you, there's a word in our text that doesn't stop there. Aren't you glad that God doesn't just stop there, lump us all in one and say, all right, I'll burn you all up. You, 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 you all. Remember I talked about someone sleeping in aisle four, section two, aisle D. I got a whole bunch of phone calls on that one. And it was nobody, okay? The people sleep, I see you, but I'm not calling you out about it. But I will tell you this. If we stop at verse one, we all die and we're all destroyed. God takes us down. But aren't you glad there's a... I love this word. Look, look in the uh, uh, verse two. It's a special word. I, I can even spell this word. It's the word but, B-U-T. I don't know what the Hebrew does with it, but I understand what it means. Stop. Wait a minute. There's something more that needs to be said. There's grace in that word but because if we stop at verse 1, it's all done. It's over. God's going to just take care of us and, and deal with us for our sin and that, that's going to be ugly. But, I love it. What do we do with this? Three letters long, I, I wrote this. Uh, this word but is three letters long, yet uh, it spans the galaxy with its width. That sounds like Charles Spurgeon. That's Tim Bedall. I, I like that. I wrote that last night. Uh, Lord, I forgive me for my pride. <laughs> Aren't you glad there's that word but there this morning? Aren't you glad because... It's not over because notice, it doesn't just mean judgment for the sinner. Stuff put up the next one. It means jubilation for the saint. I got to move quickly through this. But God turns the corner in verse 2. He doesn't stop there. He says, you know what? There's another option. You don't have to be burned up by the fire. You don't have to find yourself in a place called hell. I've got an answer for you. Look at what he says in verse 2. But for you who revere my name, oh, those that should be salve for our hearts, those who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Notice what takes place when we turn to God. God reminds us that uh, there are those that he loves, that there are those who revere him. Notice what it says in uh, chapter 3, verse 17. Remember, there's that contrast going on. Those that speak uh, in anger towards God, but then there are those that he says, they will be mine, in verse 17, in the day when I make them my treasured possessions. Understand, God says, yes, there's a time of judgment coming, but I am not just a God of justice. I'm a God of mercy, grace, and love. Now notice, before we start thinking that we're any better, you say, yes, I, I, I revere the Lord's name. And yes, I know with all my heart that when I stand on that great day of, of the Lord, I will be pardoned for my sins and I will not be put in judgment, but I will be set at a table to dine with my God for all eternity. But let me tell you something. Let me make this abundantly clear. Before you start putting medals on your chest and start saying, ah, I'm one who reveres the Lord. I don't know what those other people's problems are. The only difference between the judged and the just 
please hear me, is a five-letter word called grace. There's no difference between me and Adolf Hitler. There's no difference between me and Osama bin Laden. There's no difference. Why? Because we're all evildoers. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. Osama bin Laden, Timbadal, you all sinned, God says, and you fall short of my glory. But there's grace. God, with his amazing love, while I was a sinner, he died for me. He brought me to a place of conviction of sin. And he warmed my heart so that I would look and I would say, Lord, please take me. I'm a sinner, but I need grace. There's no difference. We are all sinners and we're all in need of saving. And before we start thinking anything of ourselves, we need to remember it's not because of what we've done. You're not being spared from judgment because you've done something. It's because of what God has done for you. Notice what the text says in uh, chapter 3. In compassion, a man spares his son. God looks upon us with compassion. He says, I will spare you from your sin. Now what happens? What's the end result? There are three things that happen. First of all, we see that because we are saved, that this day will be a glorious day. Write that down. A glorious day. The, there's an exegetical labyrinth here uh, in uh, verse 2. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Very quickly, there's a lot of uh, interpretation uh, struggles with this passage. The sun of righteousness, it's S-U-N in your NIV. And that's what it's properly to be translated. Is there going to be a time where that big yellow ball in the sky uh, brings forth righteousness and healing? Is that what we are to understand about it? Are we to understand that this is some sort of allegorical type sun? This is uh, not really the natural sun, but some sort of metaphor for a sun of righteousness and healing? I think it's more the latter. Because I believe with all my heart and I agree with the scholars that say the sun of righteousness is a mention of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And that Jesus Christ is going to come. And when he comes, there's going to be healing in its wings. A metaphor for Christ that he will return like the sun. Well, what does the sun bring? The sun brings light into a world of darkness. Jesus, in fact, said, I am the light of the world. We see that the sun, when it comes up, what does it do? It warms the earth. Jesus will come. And on that great day when he comes, the coldness of this world, not a temperature coldness, but the coldness to who God is and what he's all about will be warmed by Jesus Christ. Now notice what happens. It is that sun of righteousness that does some things. It heals. It heals. The, the wings, it says, speaking in another translation, will say the rays. It takes the broken and it puts them together. Folks, on that day, those who have never trusted Christ as their Savior will shake. The Bible says that they will cry out, let rocks fall on top of us, end our lives now. It is too much to bear. And that will be one response, but there will be a response from the people of God, and that response will be, thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Look at what will happen. As a result of us being a treasured possession, we'll be, it'll be a joyous day. Look at verse 2. You will go out and leap like calves. I don't know what to do with that. A lot of ladies sitting there saying, I don't want to be a cow. I don't want to be known as that. The cows and calves, they're gross animals. Well, I don't want to do that. There's a great picture there. If you've ever worked with livestock animals in high school as a part of the future Farmers of America, I had no intention of ever being a farmer. 
but I, but I learned you got two weeks out to help harvest the corn for the farmers out of school in the fall, and you got to help plant in the spring, and that meant a month out of school, and that was good for me. And, uh, but what I learned is we, we would go and help out in our high school with farmers that were in the area because, of course, you got to get the stuff harvested. you got to take care of it. And we weren't given many times the job of harvesting. We got the chore job around and I remember one day I had to go and open up uh, the uh, cow pen to let them go out into the field. The farmer would bring them in to keep them protected. And then he would uh, open the door in the morning and let them out. And you know what I learned? They don't like being in that barn. Cows smell. They don't like how they smell. There's no place to move. And, and I don't know if you know, it's a one-bedroom apartment. The bathroom, the kitchen, uh, the bedroom, all in the same place. And sometimes, uh, never mind. But, uh, but what would happen is as soon as that door opened, they didn't sit there and look and say, I think we're going to stay in here. I think we're going to hang out in here. What did they do? They took off. Let's go. Buffet. A private bathroom. A place to go and hang out. They, I mean, they took off as soon as that door opened. And it was amazing because they moved as quickly as they could. The whole, literally the whole barn was shaking. They wanted out. This is huge. Please, please stay with me for just one moment. This is huge because one day Jesus Christ is going to come and he is going to bring healing within his wings. And you know what's going to happen? We who have been under the bondage of sin and pain and suffering, God is going to open up, if you will, that, that earthly barn that we live in. And he's going to say, come on out to the pasture. It's all gone. You who struggle, we've talked about uh, uh, some of our, our people, our own people who are struggling with medical conditions. And so there's healing in Jesus Christ's wings. And one day you're not going to feel that pain anymore. And that barn door is going to be open. You are going to leap out like a baby calf, just excited to see the new world that is before you. Those of you who are struggling with interpersonal issues and, and things that aren't working out the way they want to, one day God's going to take care of all that. He's going to put an end to all kinds of that. The Scripture says that in heaven, one day he will wipe away every tear for there will be no more pain, no more suffering, and no more tears. That is going to be a day, my friends, where we will leap out of this world and we will be so happy to go see what God has created for us. It's going to be a joyous day. Finally, it's going to be a victorious day. Look at verse 3. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet. And on that day when I see these things, says the Lord Almighty, I will do these things, he says, what, what's going to happen on that day? We're not just going to be joyful. We're not going to just be running around like a bunch of little calves out in this celestial pasture, if you will. Uh, but there's going to be victory. Notice what he says before you close your Bibles this morning. You will trample down the wicked. First, I want to deal with the word, they will be ashes. The word ashes in, in the Hebrew literally means insignificance. Who's going to be insignificant? All those that you thought were so great. All those that you thought were getting the free ride uh, in this world, they will be insignificant. You have some people in high places that you wish you could be there with them, and, and yet you find out that they've lied, che cheated, and steal, uh, stolen to get excuse me, where they're at today. And you say, I wish I could be there. Understand there will be a day where God will make them ashes. And the text says you will trample them. You will trample them. That word trample is a military term. And what would happen is, and I don't want to be too um, grotesque here, but what would transpire when two armies and nations waged war in Hebrew times? 
The two generals would fight and their armies would go back and forth. And when there was finally victory to be done, they would bring the losing general to the victorious one. And I'm going to get a little gross here, but what would happen is, is the general would stab the losing general right into the chest. That man would fall down dead. And to show his total domination of the other general, he would take his foot and he would crush his skull. Why would God have that in there? That's a little R-rated, isn't it? It is to show that one day Jesus even, or God even told us in Genesis chapter 3 that the devil, the serpent, would strike the heel of Jesus. Why would he strike the heel? Because just about when Jesus was about to stomp on the, he, uh, the head of the general of evil named the devil, at that point of crucifixion, that devil came up and bit Jesus in the heel. But a heel strike does nothing. And on that day when Christ rose from the grave, that foot hit the head of the serpent, killed him, and dealt with him once and for all. My friends, that is going to be a day of victory, not only for us, but it is a day we will see Jesus come and take care of everything that has illed us up to this point and ailed us. And you know what we're going to do for the rest of eternity? We are going to worship the name of Jesus because of what we just saw. Let me close with this. What one are you today? Are you in verse 1? Are you in verse 1 where you find yourself uh, uh, on the the way to judgment? The Bible says there are two ways uh, to eternity. One that is filled and it's a place heading towards destruction. And then there's one that's not so filled that leads to to heaven. Which path are you on this morning? If you're verse 1 in our text today, do not leave this place because surely the day is coming. Make your decision for Jesus. If you've already trusted Jesus as your Savior this morning, live for Him. Understand that this is not our home. Understand this is not the end, but this is only the beginning and God has given us a preview of what is to come. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You this morning for all that You've done. Oh Lord, we look forward to what You're going to do. That You would come when the time is right. Lord, the Bible says in your first coming, you came when the time was at its fullest. And Lord, we know that that furnace this morning is burning. We don't know how much more time there is, but we know at some point that buzzer will ring and we will begin to hear trumpets from archangels that will uh, tell us that it's time to go, that judgment is near. And so, Lord, I pray that that heat this morning would do two things to us. For the unbeliever, the one who's never trusted Christ as their Savior, that this would be a warning to them. Turn from your sin. Judgment is coming. And that they would do that this morning. Whether they would come and talk uh, with Keith up front here at the church or me on the way out or the person sitting next to him, they wouldn't leave this place until they know that on that day they can stand before you totally free from sin. But Lord, we also feel the furnace this morning as believers. Remind us not to fall prey to the things of this world, to enjoy the things of this world, because one day fire will break out and destroy every evil thing in this world. Every house that we've put on a pedestal, every car that we've placed before you, the money that we have in our banks, 
the time and energy and things that mean nothing and eternal value will be gone one day. Father, change our hearts that we don't pursue those things, that we find our only satisfaction, our only hope, our only love in you and you alone. So that when we stand on that day, we will not be ashamed that we weren't working, that we weren't serving you, but we will join you in that glorious, in that victorious and joyous day of your coming. We know it's coming and we look forward to it that we would hasten the day so that you might be brought glory and honor. We love you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.